Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. This is from The National on Friday the 20th of January from the Politics section. Absolute disgrace. Alistair Jack snubs Holyrood committee invite. This is written by Ross Hunter. Alistair Jack has snubbed an invitation to provide evidence at a Holyrood committee on his decision to prevent Scotland's gender reform legislation from becoming law. The UK government issued a Section 35 order to block the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill from receiving royal assent. It has been branded a full frontal attack on Scotland's democracy by the First Minister. Now, Jack has said it is not his job to appear before the Scottish Parliament's Equalities, Human Rights and Civil Justice Committee. He confirmed that he won't be speaking to the Equalities Committee because my job is constitutional. MSPs have been told that Kemi Badenoch, the UK Government's Women and Equalities Minister, is the appropriate minister to invite. Earlier this week, Badenoch expressed concerns about legislation which seeks to ban conversion therapy for transgender people. She said it must not inadvertently criminalise parents who are trying to support children. SNP MSP Emma Ruddock branded Jack an absolute disgrace for refusing to meet with MSPs. She said it's an absolute disgrace that Alistair Jack is refusing to explain himself to the democratically elected Parliament of Scotland about why he has chosen to veto a bill overwhelmingly passed by them. He clearly knows there is no grounds for a Section 35 order and he has run out of ways to defend Westminster's full frontal attack on devolution. It is beyond question that he should appear before the Scottish Parliament to explain his Tory government's unprecedented attack on democracy. People across Scotland will be left with no other option than to conclude that the Secretary of State for Scotland is chicken It turns out his offer to work together was nothing more than a cheap headline. Devolution is not about what the Tory UK government decides is perfectly acceptable law. It is about the clear-cut powers of the Scottish Parliament. Perhaps the Tories should reflect on that. If the Tory UK government doesn't immediately revoke its Section 35 order, then it is clear that there's never been a more dangerous time for devolution or necessary time to become independent and escape Westminster control for good. Maggie Chapman, equality spokesperson for the Scottish Greens, also denounced Jack for shirking away from the scrutiny of Holyrood. Alistair Jack blocked gender recognition reform on entirely spurious political grounds, she said. When he was asked about it in Westminster, his response was pathetic. He could not answer the most basic questions. 
The very least he can do is speak to the committee and try to explain this unprecedented decision. That article was written by Ross Hunter. This is from The National on Friday the 20th of January from the politics section. Mari McKellen hails right to Rome at event marking 20-year milestone. This is written by Megan Carner. Environment Minister Mari McCallan joined outdoor communities at Holyrood to celebrate 20 years of Scottish access rights. Ramblers Scotland held the Outdoors for All event to mark two decades of the Land Reform Scotland Act 2003, which gives the public legal rights to access nearly all land and inland water in Scotland. Campaigners from Ramblers Scotland who fought to win the rights were among those in attendance, including Ramblers Scotland's president and mountain leader Lucy Wallace, and the charity's former presidents, including former politician Dennis Canavan and naturalist Ben Dolphin. McCallan said, Scotland's landscapes are world famous, so too is our right to responsibly access them. There are so many benefits to spending time walking in our parks, woodlands and hills, including improving our physical health, nurturing mental well-being, tackling loneliness and many more. We should all be able to access these benefits and our world-leading rights provide this. Going forward, we must prioritise action to address the barriers and challenges that some still face in accessing the outdoors. No one should be prevented from benefiting because of their circumstances. Ramblers Scotland members played a leading role in campaigning for Scotland's access rights and now much of their work is focused on upholding them. I wish to send my thanks to them and all their volunteers for their time, commitment and enthusiasm for countryside access. Enthusiasm which I wholeheartedly share. The Act which is often known as the right to roam, established a legal right to be on land and cross land for recreational and educational purposes and limited types of commercial activities. The public access rights apply equally to walkers, cyclists, climbers, canoeists, swimmers and horse riders. The Outdoors for All event was hosted by Highlands and Islands MSP Ariane Burgess and Ramblers Scotland director Brendan Paddy was also present. He highlighted how recent Scottish Government natural capital accounts place a value of £62 billion on outdoor recreation alone, pointing to it as greater than the oil and gas sector. Paddy added, the Land Reform Act 2003 is one of the standout achievements of Scotland's devolved Parliament, with our world-class access rights forming a cherished element of our national identity. The Act has delivered so much for the nation's health, happiness and economy in the past 20 years, with booming numbers of people accessing our outdoors. This month's anniversary also provides a useful moment to reflect upon how access to the outdoors remains unequal, with people in affluent areas considerably more likely to walk than those in deprived parts of Scotland. I hope that in the years ahead we focus even greater effort and resources upon ensuring that everyone, 
Whatever their background, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, ability or age, benefits from Scotland's amazing outdoors. The Scottish Household Survey 2020 found that 89% of people from Scotland's 20% least deprived areas participated in walking, whereas 66% of those from the most deprived areas reported that they walk. Rambler Scotland continues to campaign at national level for increased investment in infrastructure such as paths, ranges and low-cost campsites. That article was written by Megan Carner. This is from The National on Friday the 20th of January from the News section. Neolithic farming had a violent side, finds Edinburgh University study. This is written by Aaron Burns-Lees. The rise of agriculture in northwest Europe may have spelled the beginning of warfare and violence in the Neolithic era a period previously thought to be marked by peaceful cooperation, an Edinburgh University study has found. The research suggests that the rise of growing crops and herding animals as a way of life, replacing hunting and gathering, may have laid the foundations for formalised warfare. The findings come after researchers used bioarchaeological techniques to study human skeletal remains from sites in Denmark, France, Germany, Great Britain, Spain and Sweden. Of the skeletal remains of more than 2,300 early farmers from 180 different sites, dating from around 6,000 BC to 2,000 BC, more than 1 in 10 displayed weapon injuries potentially caused by frequent blows to the head by blunt instruments or stone axes. Dr Linda Fibiger Senior lecturer in osteoarchaeology at Edinburgh University said, Human bones are the most direct and least biased form of evidence for past hostilities, and our abilities to distinguish between fatal injuries as opposed to post-mortem breakage have improved drastically in recent years, in addition to differentiating accidental injuries from weapon-based assaults. The team from the Universities of Edinburgh, Bournemouth and Lund in Sweden and the Osteoarchaeological Research Centre in Germany also found several examples of penetrative injuries thought to have been caused by arrows. Researchers believe the findings could even suggest larger scale violence and the destruction of entire communities as some of the injuries were linked to mass burials. The peaceful nature of Neolithic European society has been the subject of heated debate among prehistorians, as more evidence suggesting violence has slowly emerged since the 1980s, starting with the discovery of an early Neolithic mass grave at Talheim, Germany, in 1983. Dr Martin Smith of Bournemouth University's Department of Archaeology and Anthropology said, the study raises the question as to why violence seems to have been so prevalent during this period. The most plausible explanation may be that the economic base of society had changed. With farming came inequality and those who fared less successfully appear at times to engage in raiding and collective violence as an alternative strategy for success with the results now increasingly being recognised archaeologically. That article was written by Aaron Burns-Lees. 
This is from The National on Friday the 20th of January from the politics section. Shetland sends short film plea to Norway over oil field plans. This is written by Lucy Garcia. Shetlanders have sent a message in a bottle plea to Norway to oppose development of a controversial oil field. The short film by campaigners titled Dear Norway calls on their siblings across the sea to halt work on the Rosebank oil field 80 miles off Shetland's coast. Rosebank is thought to hold the equivalent of 500 million barrels, making it the largest undeveloped oil and gas field in the North Sea. It would be operated by the Norwegian state-owned oil company Equinor, and the UK government is set to make a decision on whether the development will go ahead. The film is shot around Shetland and sees a local boy send a message in a bottle to Norway about the environmental harm from the project and asks it to stop Rosebank. The letter begins, Dear Norway, this is Shetland, your sibling across the sea. We need to talk. Laura Bissett, a young climate campaigner from Shetland, who features in the film, said, Drilling at Rosebank is another step backwards in a race against the climate crisis, which we are already losing. Now has to be the time to take action before it's too late. Our little island is more than a vessel for oil, and it is important for others to know we are being affected by Rosebank and that we care about the impact. The film aims to highlight historical and cultural ties between Shetland and Norway, to bolster its message, and warns that burning Rosebank's oil and gas reserves would create more CO2 than the combined annual emissions of all 28 low-income countries in the world. Instead, Norway is urged to lead the transformation away from oil and gas, and that together we can supply clean energy across Europe. Alex Armitage, a Green councillor on Shetland Islands Council, who is also in the film, said, We all know that climate breakdown is threatening our future, yet still we continue to burn fossil fuels. In this age of delusion, the world needs leadership on climate. As enlightened societies, the UK and Norway must take a stand and make the choice to leave our fossil fuels in the ground and lead the global energy transition. There are also fears over the impact of Rosebank on marine life, with the potential installation of a pipe through the protected area of the Faroe Shetland sponge belt. The decision of whether to proceed with the oil field development lies with Westminster rather than Holyrood. The UK government has repeatedly been urged by activists to put a stop to the plans. Scottish Greens Energy and Environment spokesperson Mark Ruskell has described Rosebank as a climate disaster waiting to happen. He said, We are already way past the point when we should have been moving away from oil and gas. Yet Westminster is doubling down on it. This was written by Lucy Garcia. This is from the National on Monday the 23rd of January 2023. This is from the politics section. The headline is BBC Chair Richard Sharp calls for review after Boris Johnson 
Lone Row. This article is by Adam Robertson. BBC Chair Richard Sharp has asked the nominations committee of the Broadcasters Board to review any potential conflict of interest after allegations emerged that he helped Boris Johnson secure a loan of £800,000. Sharp reportedly helped the former PM secure the cash just weeks before he was recommended for the top job at the state broadcaster. In a statement reported by the BBC, Sharp said he wanted to ensure that all the appropriate guidelines have been followed. He said, We have many challenges at the BBC and I know that distractions such as this are not welcome. Our work at the BBC is rooted in trust. Although the appointment of the BBC chairman is solely a matter for the government, I want to ensure that all the appropriate guidelines have been followed within the BBC since I have joined. The nominations committee of the BBC board has responsibility for regularly reviewing board members' conflict of interest. The broadcaster reported that Sharp has agreed with the board's senior independent director that the committee shall look at this when it next meets and, in the interest of transparency, publish the conclusions. In an email titled, A Message from the Chairman, Sharp told staff, Prior to my appointment, I introduced an old friend of mine and distant cousin of the then Prime Minister, Sam Blythe, to the Cabinet Secretary as Sam wanted to support Boris Johnson. I was not involved in making a loan or arranging a guarantee and I did not arrange any financing. What I did do was seek an introduction of Sam Blythe to the relevant official in government. He said he was appointed to his role at the broadcaster on merit and that the situation was a distraction from the BBC. The message continued, At the time I was working in Downing Street as a special economic advisor to the Treasury during the pandemic and I had submitted my application to be chairman of the BBC. I went to see the cabinet secretary and explained who Sam was and as a cousin of the Prime Minister he wanted to help him if possible. I also reminded the cabinet secretary I had submitted my application for the position of the BBC chairman. We both agreed that to avoid any conflict that I should have nothing further to do with the matter. At that point, there was no detail on the proposed arrangements and I had no knowledge of whether any assistance was possible or could be agreed. The email also told staff, I look forward to continuing our work together. The UK government has already insisted that all the correct processes were followed in Sharp's appointment. Sharp and Johnson have both denied any conflict of interest but Labour has reported the former Prime Minister to the Parliamentary Standards Watchdog. A Cabinet Office spokesperson said, Richard Sharp was appointed as Chairman of the BBC following a rigorous appointments process, including assessment by a panel of experts, constituted according to the Public Appointments Code. It comes after Foreign Secretary James Cleverley claimed that Sharp was appointed as BBC Chair on merit. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was asked about the situation during a visit to a hospital in Northamptonshire. He said, The appointment was obviously made by one of my predecessors before I became Prime Minister. The appointments process itself for appointing the BBC Chairman is a rigorous process. It is independent. There are two stages to it. It is transparent and published online. Mr Sharp's appointment went through that full process. Meanwhile, Johnson was grilled on the allegations against him on Sky News on Monday morning. He said, This is a load of complete nonsense, absolute nonsense. Let me just tell you, Richard Sharp is a good and wise man but he knows absolutely nothing about my personal finances. I can tell you that for 100% ding-dang sure. This is just another example of the BBC dissipating up its own fundament. Downing Street also denied that the appointment was an example of cronyism. The Prime Minister's official spokesman said there are processes in place to ensure that these appointments are done properly. That was followed in this instance. That article was by Adam Robertson.
This is from The National on Monday, 23rd of January, 2023. This is from the politics section. The headline is, Kemi Badenoch declines invitation to Holyrood Committee. This article is by Abby Garton-Crosby. Kemi Badenoch has declined a Scottish Parliament Committee's invitation to give evidence on the UK government's decision to block gender reforms from becoming law. It follows Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack's snub of the committee, where the Tory MP told MSPs that Badenoch, as Women's and Equalities Minister, would be the politician who should give evidence. However, Badenoch, after missing initial deadline to confirm her attendance, has now declined to appear. It comes as First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said Jack and Badenoch should have the guts to defend their decision in the Scottish Parliament. Joe Fitzpatrick, convener of the Equalities, Human Rights and Civil Justice Committee said, I am bitterly disappointed that neither Secretary of State for Scotland or Minister for Women and Equalities will be able to attend our meeting tomorrow. We had hoped to better understand the reason for the issuing of a Section 35 order in relation to the Gender Recognition Reform Bill. The committee will consider its next steps at its meeting. Last week, we told how Jack had declined an invite from the committee, which the SNP branded an absolute disgrace. Jack said it wasn't his job to appear before the Equalities Committee and said Badenoch was the appropriate minister to invite. The committee therefore extended an invite to Badenoch last week but had radio silence from UK government over the weekend. She missed the Friday deadline to confirm to clerks whether or not she should appear and confirmed on Monday afternoon that she would not be attending. Emma Roddick, SNP, MSP, said the move was a disgraceful insult to the Scottish Parliament. She added two members of the Tory UK government have now snubbed invitations to appear at Holyrood to explain why they have chosen to veto a bill overwhelmingly passed by MSPs. All Tory talk of compromise is entirely disingenuous. This is a purely political decision and an illustration of the contempt they hold for Scottish democracy. As much as the Tories hate it, devolution is not about what Westminster thinks is acceptable. It is about the right of the Scottish Parliament to pass laws that best meet the needs of the people who live here. Roddick said the Westminster Tories' action should be of huge concern to anyone who supports the Scottish Parliament's ability to legislate in devolved matters. Democracy must be protected, she added. This full frontal attack on democracy using trans people as a weapon confirms that the Tories are hell-bent on dismantling devolution and the only way to protect the people of Scotland from Westminster's control and to get rid of the Tories for good is through independence. That article was by Abby Garton-Crosby. This is from The National on Monday the 23rd of January 2023. This is from the news section. The headline is Nicola Sturgeon condemns placards at Glasgow gender reform protest. This article is by Abby Garton-Crosby. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has condemned placards held behind SNP politicians at a trans rights protest following the UK government's deployment of a Section 35 order. Speaking at a press conference in St Andrew's House in Edinburgh, the FM said that she has attended many demonstrations during her time in politics, adding she had seen many placards that would not align with my views on the topic of demonstration. SNP MPs Stuart MacDonald Alison Hewless and Kirsten Oswald, as well as MSP Kilcab Stewart, were photographed on Buchanan Street steps in Glasgow. Two signs in the background of the photograph caused outrage over the weekend, one of which read, Decapitate Turfs. 
The FM said she outright condemns the message in the placards and defended the SNP politicians who were photographed with it in the background. She told journalists, I think all politicians have an obligation to contribute to debate that is civil and respectful, and that's a responsibility I take seriously, and would expect all members of my government and all elected members of my party to take seriously as well. That said, and I've attended many demonstrations over my many years in politics now, and probably on all of them, I've seen placards or signs that would not align with my views on the topic of the demonstration, and certainly from images I have seen, it was a case at the demonstration on trans rights on Saturday. The placards that I have seen in no way, absolutely no way, shape or form, accord with my views, and I would condemn the way in which those views were expressed and the views that were expressed there. I don't think it is fair or credible to suggest that the elected representatives who were there in any way share or condone those views. The FM added that there are generally numerous views represented at political rallies, not all of which attendees would agree with. She added, I've seen images over the last couple of weeks from demonstrations against the Gender Recognition Reform Bill outside Parliament where there have been placard signs that I've seen certainly seen images on social media about me that were offensive and in my view, although I'm subjective about these things perhaps, that they were completely unacceptable. So, you know, I think we've all got a responsibility to express ourselves, particularly elected representatives, in ways that we think are appropriate. And I would certainly say that that applies to me and to others in my party. The First Minister was referencing a protest on January 12th outside of Holyrood, which saw hundreds of anti-gender reform protesters gathering, calling for the bill to be stopped. The gathering was organised by the Scottish Family Party and supporters of the Glasgow cabbie, who has previously expressed scepticism against COVID-19 vaccines, and many protesters held placards targeting the FM. That article was by Abby Garton Crosby. This is from The National on Monday the 23rd of January 2023. This is from the news section. The headline is, Rishi Sunak met with fake war hero at Veterans Summit. This article is by Ross Hunter. Rishi Sunak has been fooled after meeting with a fake war hero who turned out to be a former pub singer. It has been revealed. Last month, the Prime Minister attended a Veterans Summit at 10 Downing Street. During the visit, he chatted to Chris Webber, a 64-year-old who has claimed to have served nine years in the army and boasted about being one of the first soldiers to land in the Falklands during the unofficial war in 1982. However, members of a veterans group which unmask fake war heroes, the Walter Mitty Hunters Club, spotted that two of Webber's medals were non-military and that his cap badge dated from the reign of George VI. It turned out that Webber had bought the items online. After the group contacted him online, Webber claimed to be the Prime Minister's veterans advisor and waxed lyrical about his time in the Falklands, despite never having been there. He said, I was quickly seconded to the Intelligence Corps as I spoke fluent Spanish. I was a spook. On 5th of April 1982, I landed as part of a four-man covert team to observe enemy movements. I was there 74 days and lost 255 colleagues to Argentinian hostilities. I once adopted the role of an enemy soldier. If I'd been sussed, goodness knows what would have happened to me. Losing friends who were like brothers to me has been very difficult. After being confronted by the group, Weber apologised and admitted his dishonesty. Weber's only army experience was three months in the Territory Army when he was in his 20s. In actuality, his career has included time as a holiday rep and pub singer in Spain, 
where he went by the name Kushti. A spokesperson for the Walter Mitty Hunters Club said, The club solely exists to act as a deterrent to those who wish to masquerade as a veteran, a serving member of the armed forces and those who exaggerate their service. Such people undermine genuine time-served veterans and those who are still serving in the eyes of the public. A government spokesman said, The government is committed to ending veteran rough sleeping and helping those at risk of homelessness. We recently announced an £8.5 million funding package for charities to deliver health and education services in more than 900 housing units. Due diligence checks are carried out for these events. Weber said he felt absolutely dreadful and claimed his deceit stemmed from a desire to emulate his father and grandfather, who allegedly both served in World War II. The article was by Ross Hunter. From the National, Friday the 20th of January 2023, from the comment section, Joanna Cherry, Gender Bill Might Have Faced Legal Challenge, Post Indy, by Joanna Cherry, columnist. Everyone knows I am opposed to the Gender Recognition Reform Bill. However, I believe the problems it creates should be addressed in Scotland, if not by our Parliament, then by our courts. That said, to describe the use of the Section 35 power to block the bill as an attack on devolution doesn't really make sense. It is of the essence of devolution that the devolved Parliament is subservient to the UK Parliament. That's why we as nationalists want independence. In an independent Scotland, the passing of the bill by a parliamentary majority would not necessarily have guaranteed that it would have become law without further challenge. If we were an independent country with a written constitution, I predict this bill would be facing a legal challenge based on the concerns about its impact on equality law and human rights. If you cast your mind back to the summer of 2014, you will recall that the Transitional Constitution, published in a white paper with a foreword by Nicola Sturgeon, enshrined the protected characteristics of the Equality Act and the rights protected by the European Convention on Human Rights, ECHR, in Scotland's new constitution. Those protected characteristics include age, disability, gender reassignment, marriage and civil partnership, pregnancy and maternity, race, religion or belief, sex and sexual orientation, not in a hierarchy but all deserving of equal treatment. So let's have a little bit less hysteria and more cool heads. The women, the old ladies, people with disabilities and those who are same-sex attracted who have valid concerns about the impacts of this bill are as deserving of having their voices heard as the trans people whom it may benefit. They don't deserve to have their voices drowned out in this issue by being turned into a constitutional football. I am not opposed to simplification of the process of gender recognition for trans people, as was promised in the SNP manifesto, but simplification should not mean eliminating safeguards. The First Minister has said repeatedly the bill gives no new rights to trans people. That is correct. You will search in vain for the word trans in the bill. It's not there. Instead, the bill creates a new right for anyone to self-identify as the opposite sex with next to no meaningful safeguards. It's pretty obvious that giving any man the right to be able to self-identify as a woman will impact on the rights of women to safety, dignity and privacy. And, for lesbians, the fact that any man can say he's a woman poses a threat to our right to be same-sex attracted. Let's just remind ourselves of the sort of safeguards to the bill we were voted down in the Scottish Parliament. 
An amendment to prevent known sex offenders from obtaining a Gender Recognition Certificate, GRC. An amendment to prevent those awaiting trial on sex offences from applying for a GRC, which would have protected rape victims from the humiliation of having to use female pronouns to refer to their attacker in court. Amendments to protect vulnerable women in prison. Amendments to ensure those receiving intimate care could elect to receive it only from members of their same sex. Amendments to allow the continuation of single-sex wards in healthcare settings. Are we really saying this is acceptable and justifiable? In my work as Chair of the Joint Committee on Human Rights, GCRH, at Westminster, I carefully scrutinise the human rights implications of bills that would come before the UK Parliament. We don't just look at the rights of those whom the bill is intended to benefit, with the Tories that's generally their pals in big business or the privileged, but we also look at the impacts on the rights of others, whether intentional or unintentional. When I look at the GRR bill, I see that it might assist trans people's right to live in safety and with dignity, privacy and respect for their private life and beliefs, Articles 2, 3, 8, 9 and 10 of the ECHR. But I also see it could impact on the rights of women and LGBT people to do the same. Sometimes rights conflict, and when that happens accommodations between conflicting rights must be found. I don't think there was a proper analysis of the full rights and implications of the bill during the parliamentary process. Likewise, when it comes to the adverse effect of the Legislation and Equality Act, MSPs were warned about this by the Equality Human Rights Commission and political analysts such as Murray, Blackburn Mackenzie, but these warnings were not subjected to appropriate rigorous analysis. And those who say that the GRR bill explicitly states it could not affect the Equality Night, I say is a very naive understanding of how legislation works. You could pass a bill saying that the sky was green, but that wouldn't change the fact that it's blue. A lot is also made of the fact that the bill has been subjected to six years of consultation and scrutiny, but, as national columnist Shona Craven has pointed out, we should not confuse the lens of the process with the thoroughness. It seems likely now that these rights issues will be revisited in court. If the Scottish Government proceeds with its judicial review of the Section 35 order, strictly speaking the court should confine itself to be a consideration of whether the order was lawfully and reasonably invoked, but I cannot see how it can do that without considering whether the Equality Act is, indeed, adversely impacted. Separately, I would anticipate further legal challenges to the Bill on the grounds that it conflicts with the human rights of women and LGB people. The Scotland Act provides that, and the Scottish Parliament cannot legislate in a way that is incompatible with the rights set out in the ECHR. We all know the Tories aren't too pushed about human rights in any way, Section 35 does not allow the bill to be vetoed based on the adverse effect of impact on ECHR rights. However, others care about the universality of human rights and women and LGBT people now as some powerful and brave grassroots champions, notwithstanding the attacks to which they have been subjected. And that brings me to my final point. The behaviour of some MPs in the House of Commons changer during the debate on Tuesday was identifying. A male Labour MP was allowed to launch into a screaming tirade at a female Tory MP who has described her fear and discomfort in counting what she perceived as a man dressed as a woman in a woman's toilets, with only the mildest censure from the chair. The Labour MP Rosie Duffield, 
a survivor of domestic abuse, was howled down by mainly male voices. It was just a small taste of what I and others have faced for raising concerns about the wider implications of self-identification, and it was one of those reasons why I absented myself from the chamber during the debate. Bullying is never okay. It is not acceptable for anyone to bully women in their place of work or anywhere else just because they disagree with them. It's particularly horrible to see men do it to women. Anyone who cannot acknowledge that this to be the case shouldn't be in public life. The way in which some people have been allowed to conduct themselves during this debate is a disgrace to Scotland and British politics. When some of the most vocal proponents of legislation threaten women who express concern about its impacts with violence, including sexual violence, and politicians supporting the legislation look the other way, something is very wrong. For daring to raise legitimate concerns about the impact of this legislation on women, girls and LGB people, I have faced rape threats, death threats, a toxic working environment and the threat of the loss of my livelihood. My experience is typical of women across the UK in politics, the health service, education and other sectors. If this is what I face as a woman in the privileged position of a member of parliament, then what hope is there for any working class or vulnerable woman who wants to raise concerns about the impact of this bill on her dignity, safety or privacy? Scotland can do better than this. And that was a comment piece by Joanna Cherry. From the National, Friday the 20th of January 2023, from the Culture section, BAFTA's commend Scottish feature film with four nominations by Kera Mowat. A Scottish director and writer's debut has been recognised with multiple nominations at the BAFTAs. After Sun, from Charlotte Wales, is in the running to win four BAFTAs, including Outstanding British Film. However, it was snubbed in the Best Film category. Wales has received a nomination for the category of Outstanding Debut by a British Writer or Director. Paul Meskell, who plays Callum Patterson in the drama, has been nominated for Best Leading Actor and Lucy Pardee for the Best Casting in a Feature Film. The 100 minute long period film tells the story of Father Callum, Paul Meskell, and daughter Sophie, Frankie Corio, navigating their relationship on a holiday to Turkey in the late 1990s. Wells returned to her hometown of Edinburgh to open the city's International Film Festival with Aftersun in August last year. The film has since received glowing reviews, including 96% on Rotten Tomatoes and 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb. It made $2.8 million at the box office and has been recognised by the British Independent Film Awards, the Directors Guild of America, the Gotham Independent Film Awards and the New York Film Critics Circle Awards. All Quiet on the Western Front, a Netflix adaptation of the 1929 anti-war novel by Eric Maria Remarque, scooped up 14 nominations for this year's BAFTAs, which are set to take place on February the 19th. Nominated alongside Aftersun for the best debut by a British writer, director or producer is Blue Jean, Electric Malady, Rebellion and Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. Also on the books to win at this year's awards is The Banshees of Inisherin, Elvis, Everyth- Everything Everywhere All at Once, See How They Run and Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. The BAFTAs will take place at 7pm on February the 19th 
available to watch on BBC One and BBC iPlayer. And that report was by Kara Mowat. From The National, Friday the 20th of January 2023, from the culture section, the 1975's Matty Healy declares Scotland should be independent. By Stacey Mullen. Verdict, four stars. The anticipation of the 1975 gig in Glasgow has never been higher. The band have dominated TikTok in recent weeks with snippets from their At Your Very Best tour, which took them around the US and UK, teasing fans on what to expect. And when they finally arrived on stage at Glasgow's Hydro, those fans were desperate for the magical Matty Healy moments which have gone viral. And boy did he deliver a performance. Guitarist Adam Hahn, bassist Ross MacDonald, and drummer George Daniel arrived in a cinematic set of a living room before Matty casually drawing a cigarette took to the spotlight. Taking swigs of what appeared to be a bottle of wine, he took on the role of the tortured rock and roll star to belt out Oh Caroline and I'm in love with you. Admitting he was struggling, he continued his on-stage demise with the haunting About You, taken from the latest album Being Funny in a Foreign Language. As the band left the stage one hour in, Matty, in a moment of reflection, which involved him meeting Raw Meat, was reborn as a charismatic star that makes him worthy of frontman status today. Lifting up the atmosphere instantly with his transformation, he showed what the 1975 are like at their very best, as he paid tribute to Glasgow rockers The Blue Mile, declaring them a favourite band, and told the city audience that Scotland should be independent. Chocolate and It's Not Living If It's Not With You followed after he reminisced with fans about the band's early shows, which was in King Tut's in 2006, where he wore shorts. That was then and this is now, when the band can command a sold-out show at the city's biggest music venue. More than two decades on, after forming at school, the 1975 are at the top of their game, and there is no doubt those humble beginnings and that history has allowed a natural on-stage chemistry with musicianship, which is flawless, creating a sound that is entirely unique. The 1975 know how to put on a show captivating the audience from start to finish, theatrics aside. While the first half appeared to be confusing to a newcomer, like me, the second half converted me into a fan. The sound was a complete highlight, as the fans took the roof off the hydro with their energy before Give Yourself a Try completed proceedings. Next up, the 1975 are headlining Transmit in the Summer, and hopefully, it's at their very best. And that review is by Stacey Mullen. From The National, Tuesday the 24th of January, 2023. From the News section. BBC Chair Richard Sharp. I Won't Quit Over Boris Johnson Loan Row. By Craig Meehan. The chair of the BBC has said he will not resign from his position at the corporation following a row over reports about a major loan to former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Richard Sharp said he does not believe there was any conflict of interest over his appointment following allegations that he helped then Prime Minister Johnson to secure a loan of up to £800,000. Sharp said he believed his selection process was conducted by the book and denied he had misled the advisory panel or MPs on the Commons Digital, Culture, Media and Sport Committee when he appeared before them. 
The former banker has been facing calls to stand down after it emerged that in late 2020, he had introduced his friend Sam Blythe to the Cabinet Secretary Simon Case to discuss whether Blythe could act as a guarantor for a loan facility for Johnson. On Monday, Public Appointments Commissioner William Shawcross announced he is to investigate Sharp's appointment as BBC Chairman in February 2021 to ensure the process was conducted fairly, openly and on merit. In an interview with BBC News, Sharp said he was comfortable with the way the process had been carried out. Having had a discussion with the Cabinet Secretary about avoiding conflict and the perception of conflict, I felt comfortable and I still feel there was no conflict because at that stage what I was seeking to do was ensure that the process was followed exactly by the book and that the process hadn't started of any kind in terms of any support that Sam Blythe was going to provide to the Minister, he said. I had clarified and agreed with the Cabinet Secretary both of us had the judgment that I'd avoided a conflict or a perception of conflict. That article was by Craig Meehan. From The National, Tuesday the 24th of January 2023, from the News section. Outlander's Diana Gabaldon issues statement after historical inaccuracy row. By Ross Hunter. Outlander author Diana Gabaldon has clarified a tweet in which she claimed that the SNP were responsible for the word Scotch falling out of use in Scotland. The American author was responding to a query from a fan who was interested in the kind of hat Sam Hyen's character Jamie was wearing in an episode of the Outlander TV series. Gabaldon said that the hat was a Scotch bonnet, which is more often referred to as a tamoshanta. However, in her response, she also said that the SNP were instrumental in the usage of the word Scotch falling out of use after they got into power in the mid-20th century. The National reached out to Diana Gabaldon and asked her to clarify what she meant by her tweet after a professor of Scottish history disagreed with her interpretation. She sent the following response. This was in answer to someone who asked what sort of hat he was wearing in the notorious ghost scene from season one of The Outlander Show. Well, there are two gentlemen in that scene, and they're both wearing head coverings. But from the general shape of the discussion, I assume the questioner meant Jamie, the Highlander, rather than Frank, snappily dressed post-World War II gent. So I said that if it's Jamie, he's wearing a scotch bonnet with a feather in it. However, I know from years of experience of people coming up to me at book signings and informing me, often finger-wagging, a dangerous thing to do if you are within biting distance, that only tape is scotch. The word is Scots. Mind you, none of these people are Scots, and many of them are plainly the sort who would spot whiskey with an E, so I merely smile pleasantly and sign their books. Because I actually do a quite a bit of research when writing these books, and have been doing for the last 35 years. A lot of said research involves reading things written by actual Scottish people, both fiction and non-fiction, and that's why I feel reasonably okay by saying that most things written by Scottish people through the late 18th, 19th and early 20th century use the word Scotch without the slightest blush. I have, for example, a book written by Sir Harry Lauder, My Best Scotch Stories, 
London, 1929. And then there's I Love a Lassie or Mascotch Bluebell, Vintage Sheet Music, Francis Day and Hunter, 1906. Granted, Sir Harry was a stage Scotchman and therefore perhaps not totally representative of linguistic norms, but he is evidence that no one at the time thought there was anything wrong with the word Scotch as being an adjective, implying that whatever it was had something to do with Scotland. Today, though, the majority of non-Scottish people I talk to about Scotland or the book or the show are extremely careful to use only the word Scot while sedulously avoiding Scotch, even when it really ought to be using Scots or Scottish as the adjectival form. That's why I inserted the parenthetical remark indicating that Scotch bonnic was historical and, as such, in no way offensive. Being a thorough-minded person, though, friends and relations are prone to tell people who ask me questions to be careful because there's a substantial risk that I will actually tell them, I thought that I should, within the bounds of a single tweet, indicate something about the use of Scot versus Scotch, as so many people are careful these days to avoid the latter at all times, fearing incorrectness. Now, I think that you, or perhaps your readers, may be confusing correlation for causality with regard to my tweet. But the fault is really cultural idiom, by which I mean there were several shifts in usage that occurred throughout the middle of the 20th century, and these correlated roughly with the growth of the SNP into visibility. That's what I mean by came into power. Not that they were running the government, but that they had achieved some political representation. Whereas it's common in the UK to equate power with whomever is actually the party at the top for the moment, I don't mean to imply that the SNP dictated a change from Scotch to Scots-Scots-Scottish, or that they could. Mainly that I see the linguistic change occurring roughly parallel with the emergence of the party. Chance is that an underlying development of nationalistic feeling is driven both political and linguistic developments. Gabaldon's first Outlander book was published in 1991. It has sold more than 25 million copies worldwide and spawned a successful televised series starring Scottish actor and independent supporter Sam Hewan. This article was by Ross Hunter. From The National, Tuesday the 24th of January 2023, from the news section. Scots reject Union Jacks on Scottish produce in favour of saltire. By Hamish Morrison. Scots overwhelmingly prefer seeing a saltire on Scottish produce over Union Jack, an exclusive new poll for the National has revealed. In a blow to Union Jackery, which plague Scottish products denied the saltire in place of the flag of the United Kingdom, 71% of Scots said they preferred to see the St Andrew's Cross on food and drink from Scotland over a Union flag. The National has long reported on instances where the saltire has been snubbed on food and drink packaging for the Union Jack, and the damage this can do to Scotland's reputation as a producer of quality grub. Polling carried out for this newspaper by Find Out Now found just 16% of Scots preferred to see a Union Jack on Scottish produce, 4% said they would prefer not to see and 9% said 
don't know. The results held true across almost all sections of society, with all age groups preferring the saltire by comfortable margins and in every geographical region of Scotland. The question even crossed political divides, subsamples suggested. A plurality of Tory voters said they preferred to see a saltire, 49%, versus just 37% who said they would like to see a Union Jack on Scottish produce. Labour voters preferred to see a saltire with 71% backing that option. SNP voters were most supportive of Scottish branding, with 94% saying they would like to see saltires on Scottish food and drink. Some 61% of Lib Dem voters said they would prefer to see a St Andrew's Cross on Scottish food and drink, while only 17% said they would prefer to see a union flag. Ruth Watson, the founder of campaign group Keep Scotland the Brand, which aims to maintain the integrity of the Scottish brand on produce, said supermarkets may be shooting themselves in the foot with union jackery practices. She told The National, Research repeatedly shows Scotland's name is good for business. This latest poll shows that the significant majority of people would prefer to see clear Scottish provenance on our food and drink. Watson said she had met a Conservative-backing farmer who was disgusted with the way her Scottish produce had been jackified. She added, I have been all over the country speaking to people of all backgrounds and political perspectives about this issue over the years, and it is widely recognised that Scotland's name is an important selling point both at home and overseas. I've had a Tory farmer tell me she has turned around and walked out of the supermarket in disgust, when she saw the way her produce was packaged in Union Jacks, her farm's location removed, wiping away the years of hard work she and others in the area had put into building up their reputation and market loyalty. While food packaging is reserved to the UK government, I hope businesses and the sector will look again at what they can do to put clear and honest labels on Scotland's food and drink. Ewan MacDonald Russell, deputy head of the Scottish Retail Consortium, said saltires were primarily used when marketing to a Scottish market and noted retailers had shown long-held and considerable support for Scottish producers and farmers. He said, Retailers buy billions of pounds of Scottish products each year to sell in Scotland, the UK and other markets. Where product lines are aimed at a purely Scottish market, retailers will often choose to use saltires or similar markings. However, in many cases, these products are aimed at a wider market and therefore UK markings are used. Decisions on labelling are driven by regulatory compliance, cost and the importance to consumers. Retailers will ultimately judge whether the benefit of Scottish-specific labelling outweigh these other factors. However, none of that will impact on retailers' long-held and considerable support for Scottish producers and farmers. In a notable example of union jackery, retail giant Marks & Spencer came under fire in 2020 for slapping a union flag on a haggis, neeps and tatties ready meal. In, and in 2019, 
We've revealed that Tesco branded strawberries as British, complete with a Union Jack on the packaging, while blueberries carried a saltire on their packaging in the same delivery to one disgusted national reader, despite both products coming from Scottish farms. The poll was conducted from January the 11th to the 18th and saw a nationally representative sample of 1,094 Scottish adults interviewed. This article was by Hamish Morrison. From The National, Tuesday the 24th of January 2023, from the news section. Tories planning scandalous raise of retirement age in UK, by Abby Garton Crosby. The Tories are planning to raise the retirement age in the UK in a scandalous move to boost Treasury coffers. It's understand that Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is considering raising the pension age to 68 by the end of the 2030s, reports have said. The state pension age is already due to rise from 66 to 67 in 2028, while the increase to 68 was not due to happen until 2046. However, The Sun reports that an upcoming review is set to bring this date forward to the 2030s in a bid to raise billions for the UK purse. It's understood that Chancellor Jeremy Hunt could announce the move as early as the budget in March. However, the DUP insisted no decision had been made. The SNP said the move would be scandalous and accused the Tories of another attack on state pensions. A government source told the newspaper there is a real risk that more people will die before they reach retirement and can draw their pensions, given the change in life expectancy projections since 2017, if we were to bring the state pension age increase too far forward. That would be especially true of people in the most deprived areas of the country where life expectancy is already lower. Tom Selby, AJ Bell's head of retirement policy, added... Rishi Sunak will be playing with political fire. The latest official data suggests average life expectancy improvements, the main justification for state pension age increases, have gone into reverse since the pandemic. David Linden MP, the SNP's social justice spokesperson, said, This is just the latest in a long line of attacks from the Tories on the UK's state pension. In 2014, the people of Scotland were warned that the only way to protect their pensions was by voting no. Fast forward nine years, and the current state pensions doesn't support the minimum standard of living, with the state age now set to rise to a staggering 68. This is scandalous and must be condemned in the strongest possible way. Be in no doubt, for as long as Scotland remains under Westminster control, our pensions will continue to be under threat. Only with the full powers of independence can we protect Scotland's pensions and build a fairer, more prosperous country. A DWP spokesman said, No decision has been taken on changes to the state pension age. The government is required by law to regularly review the state pension age, and the second state pension age review is currently considering, based on a wide range of evidence, including latest life expectancy data and two independent reports, whether the rules around state pension age remain appropriate. The review will be published early this year. That article was by Abby Gaye-Garton-Crosby. The National News on Wednesday the 25th of January. 
drug death numbers back on the rise. An article written by Jane MacLeod. The number of suspected drug deaths in Scotland in October and November increased following a downward trend. Figures show. Public Health Scotland's Rapid Action Drugs Alerts and Response quarterly report shows 109 people died from suspected drug use in November, higher than the same month in both 2021, when it was 89, and 2020, when it was 93. Figures for October were not included in the report. As a result of the rise in drug deaths in recent years, the Scottish Government pledged to publish suspected drug death statistics on a quarterly basis, with the most recent release in December showing a fall of 15% between July and September when compared to the previous quarter. Suspected drug deaths are reported based on Police Scotland management information and are not confirmed through toxicology. Drugs Minister Angela Constance extended her deepest sympathy to all those affected by the loss of a loved one through drugs. She added, Although the suspected drugs deaths figures showed a 21% decrease for the first nine months of last year, this latest report indicates a sharp increase in October and November. I'm aware this report uses management information provided by Police Scotland and is based on attending officers' observations and initial inquiries at the scene of death – But of course, the numbers we're seeing are still far too high. We remain focused on our ongoing efforts to get more people into the form of treatment which works best for them. We're committed to delivering drug-checking facilities in Scotland, which would enable us to respond faster to emerging trends, and we would anticipate that licence applications to the Home Office to grant permission for the establishment of these facilities in Glasgow, Dundee and Aberdeen will be submitted early this year. The report also released an alert for emergency services and drugs workers about a group of synthetic opioids known as nitazines, which have been discovered across the country and in prisons. The alert claims most detections in Scotland were seen in fake oxycodone pills, sometimes stamped with an M or the number 30. It's also been found in white paper form in prison seizures. The drug has been detected in Lothian, Grampian and Greater Glasgow and Clyde, according to the report. Miss Constance said, As a result of an increase in the availability of a new group of synthetic opioid drugs called nitazines, Public Health Scotland has issued an alert so drug and alcohol services, emergency services, healthcare settings and high-risk settings are aware. An article written by Jane MacLeod. The National On Wednesday, the 25th of January. Opinion. The UK has to get real, as the EU is sick of its nonsense. A column written by Alan Smith. The words we use matter, and in politics it's important not to use the language and framing of your opponents. The Republicans in the United States worked for years to normalise the phrase tax relief, as if tax is a bad thing, like pain, that you can alleviate, and that's okay. Similarly, the UK parties have normalised talk of Brexit, and I'm pretty sure the people of Scotland are scunnered of hearing about it. We didn't like it at the time, and we rejected it comprehensively. Yet it was inflicted upon us anyway, proving the glaring democratic deficit in the UK, and it continues on a daily basis to cause real problems for our citizens, our economy and indeed our public services. The Scottish Government has several billion pounds less to fund public services because of the economic hit Brexit has done to the Scottish economy, 
and that has real-world consequences. But while all of that is true, people are sick of hearing about it, and we need to pivot to the fact that we have the answer to the problems – independence in Europe. We saw just last week with the announcement of the UK levelling up funding awards towards various projects across Scotland. Good. Stirling is to receive some cash, and I'm glad to see it. But it's important to look at the whole picture. If a mugger stole your wallet and then gave you back some change for the bus home, you would be entitled to still feel aggrieved. So it is with the levelling up fund. Fact is, it's sweeties compared to both the damage Brexit has done to us and the EU funding we have lost, which they promised to match, remember. And, and let's all focus on this, we'll get back with independence. So, to my mind, we need to refresh the argument, move away from old battles and get the discussion onto our territory. This will help win people to yes, and it's more important now than ever, because the chaos and bad news sadly isn't going to stop. Yesterday, a dynamite new report published by UK in a Changing Europe highlighted a range of looming deadlines on vital policy areas which will be under threat in the coming weeks and months, and it's vital stuff for Scotland's economy. Essentially, numerous transitional arrangements under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, whereby the UK left the EU, are going to come to an end unless they're agreed on a more long-term footing. Not roll on or somehow be fudged for another few years. Stop, because the EU is sick of the UK's nonsense. There's every possibility there will indeed be new arrangements agreed upon, but the UK needs to get real because there's one big blockage that has all talks on everything in the deep freeze in Brussels – the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. This odious bill is presently stuck in the House of Lords, having been rammed through the House of Commons, and threatens to withdraw from the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, because the Northern Ireland Protocol is an integral part of it, despite the UK having made a solemn commitment to implement it barely a few years ago. This is an act of bad faith and has undermined all trust that anyone in Brussels will take the UK at its word. Leaving the EU in the way we did was bad enough, but the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill only serves to exacerbate further problems and block meaningful discussion towards durable solutions. So whether it be fisheries, financial services, energy, data or electric vehicles, there's a range of upcoming deadlines as part of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement which are urgently due for negotiation and there's not much progress being made. I've long said that getting rid of the Protocol Bill will not only help improve the situation in Northern Ireland but help all of us in these islands by rebuilding trust between the EU and the UK. This matters to us in Scotland not just because we want to see our institutions continue to be part of the EU programmes, but also because after independence we will, as an integral part of the EU, want to have as close a relationship with the UK as we can, even if they can't find the wherewithal to join. Those who advocated for Brexit – and that's the last time I'm going to use that word in this column – claimed that special deals out with the EU are possible. They are. I don't rule out of the prospect of a workable deal on Erasmus, Horizon Europe, space research, energy cooperation, data sharing and digital market access. But to get those deals there needs to be trust, and it needs to be in the EU's interest to make a deal at all. 
and the EU does want deals, look at what it's agreed with Norway, Iceland and plenty of others. It's possible to have a high degree of engagement without being a full part. But with advantages come obligations and there needs to be mutual respect. Compared to the importance to the EU of the integrity of its own market, the UK is small potatoes and doesn't hold the cards it thinks it does. But all these problems can be fixed at a stroke by joining the EU as an independent state. I wish the UK well in finding sustainable arrangements and will put my shoulder to the wheel to help find them because it's in Scotland's interest too. But I'm not interested in fighting old battles or saying I told you so. I'm focused on independence in Europe. A column written by Alan Smith. The National News on Wednesday the 25th of January. Space sector can be crucial to Ireland's future. An article written by Adam Robertson. The deputy CEO of a major space agency operating from Shetland has said he hopes the space sector can play a role in helping form a closer relationship with mainland Scotland. Saxavord, based on Unst, on the northern tip of the islands, is developing a vertical launch spaceport. Scott Hammond told The National he's keen to market the business as a European spaceport, given they have clients from Germany, Poland, France and Turkey. Part of what makes Saxavord such an attractive proposition for clients launching satellites or wanting to gather data is its location. For Saxavord, what's so important is location, 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 Mr Hammond explains. If you look at the spaceport being built in Sutherland, they can't go directly into orbit because they have the Faroe Islands in the way, so they have to kick off to one side and then kick back. When anyone launches something, it can't be done too close to population centres or fly over them, so we are in the perfect place. Because we launch north, we don't fly over any population centres. There's basically nothing between us and the Arctic, so that's really important. Saxavord bosses have confirmed that the first rocket launch could blast off in October or November this year. It comes after Spaceport Cornwall attempted a horizontal satellite launch earlier in January. The rocket left the wing of Virgin Orbit's 747 jet, although it failed to deliver its payload into orbit due to an anomaly in the second stage. The new Scottish spaceport sits on what used to be part of an RAF base and is well positioned for launches which go from pole to pole. The Shetland Islands had the second lowest population when compared with all 32 council areas in Scotland, according to recent figures. By being a hub for such a highly skilled industry, Mr Hammond hopes it will make the area more attractive for people either coming to the area or for youngsters to return after completing a space-related degree. Mr Hammond explains, It will be a slow burn as it's a new industry, so we need time to get people trained and universities are starting to come around to that. If you look at Unst, it has a population of about 600. That used to be in the region of 900 to 1200 when the RAF provided jobs, but they left a while ago which was a massive hit to the economy. This is an opportunity to grow. It won't happen overnight, but everyone will benefit. For example, we have high-speed internet on Unst now, and part of the business case for that was the spaceport. We've been able to improve the roads as well. 
If you talk to locals, they'll say that if we bring another family up, that means the school doesn't close. You maintain a teacher. I think across the next 10 or 20 years, you'll see a change being brought to the island. Asked if Scotland can fulfil its ambition of becoming Europe's leading space nation, he said, Yes, I bang on about how what we're doing will help Scotland to punch well above its weight in the space industry. We won't be able to compete with America, given our population, but we can do it with other nations. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News, on Wednesday the 25th of January. Water restored to 100,000 properties after a pipe burst in Mulgai. An article written by Adam Robertson. Supplies have been restored to around 100,000 properties which were left without water after a major pipe burst. A 36-inch water main burst in Mulgai, eastern Bartonshire, on Tuesday afternoon and led to flooding in the area, as well as interrupting supplies for customers in parts of Glasgow. The force of the main bursting split Ochenhowie Road open and children at the Lullaby Lane Nursery had to take shelter in the nearby Rangers Training Centre. Scottish Water said around 250,000 customers in around 100,000 properties were affected by the incident. The company said that customers were reconnected late on Tuesday evening. A spokesperson said, Supply has been restored to all customers impacted by this major burst. A small number of customers may still be experiencing no water or low pressure whilst the system continues to recharge and recover, which we expect to be completed during the early hours of the morning. This was a major burst which impacted a large number of people in and around Glasgow. We thank everyone for their patience while our teams worked hard to restore supply as quickly as possible. The burst water main interrupted supplies for customers in Glasgow city centre, as well as the Knightswood, Yoker, Scotston, Partick, Kelvinside, Tradeston and Ibrox areas of the city. Scottish Water says customers may experience low or intermittent water pressure or discoloured water, adding if water is brown then this is the natural lying sediment within the mains that has been disturbed. It advised customers to allow their cold water kitchen tap to run at reduced pressure until this runs clear. The burst caused some localised flooding and damage to roads, and some routes will need to be closed for repairs. An article written by Adam Robertson. Reported from the National on the 25th of January 2023. From the Culture section, recorded by Amy. Radio One's big weekend set for Dundee return after Covid cancellation by Lucy Garcia. Dundee will host Radio One's Big Weekend three years after organisers were forced to cancel the event in the city due to COVID-19. From May 26th to 28th, Camperdown Park will welcome festival goers to the City of Discovery. Camperdown Park also hosted the event in 2006. It is likely to feature some of the biggest names in music. Last year's event included performances from Ed Sheeran, Calvin Harris, Anne-Marie, and Sam Fender. An official announcement by Radio 1 is expected in the coming weeks after their career revealed that the city of Jute, Jam and Journalism, was to host the annual event. Many Dundonians were disappointed last year when the event travelled to Coventry. Fans had expected it to return to Dundee after the planned festival in 2020 had to be cancelled due to the pandemic. Harry Styles and Dua Lipa were scheduled to perform at the event in 2020. Thousands are expected to descend on the city for the event. In previous years, the majority of tickets 
have been reserved for residents of the host city. Dundee will become the first Scottish city to host the event twice. That article was by Lucy Garcia. From the National, Thursday the 26th of January 2023, from the news section, E9 accident, pedestrian killed following crash on busy road. Report by Adam Robertson. A 42-year-old man has died after he was struck by a car in Perth. The collision occurred around 1.30pm on Wednesday on the southbound carriageway of the A9 between the Inverell Island and Broxton roundabouts. The pedestrian was struck by a Peugeot 2008 which had been driven by a 31-year-old woman. The man was pronounced dead at the scene while the woman was taken to Perth Royal Infirmary as a precaution. The road was closed to allow for an investigation at the scene and fully reopened around 7pm. Police Sergeant Kevin Mulkey said, Our thoughts are with the family and friends of the man who died and everyone affected by this crash. Our inquiries to establish the full circumstances are ongoing and I would judge anyone who may have information or dashcam footage from the road at the time to get in touch. And that report was by Adam Robertson. From the National, Thursday the 26th of January 2023, from the news section, Dominic Rabb accused of bullying by at least 24 civil servants. Article by Craig Meehan. Dominic Rabb has reportedly been the subject of formal bullying complaints by at least 24 civil servants. Eight formal allegations have been levelled against the Deputy Prime Minister and are being investigated by senior lawyer Adam Tolley, KC. But The Guardian says all but two of those complaints involve multiple accusers, with a number of Rab's private office, office staff from his time as Foreign Secretary believed to have made submissions. The newspaper said the total number of complainants is thought to be at least two dozen, though it could number more than 30. Rab said he is always mindful of his behaviour, but makes no apologies for having high standards when asked whether he has changed how he deals with others. The Justice Secretary previously told the BBC, There's a number of complaints that have been made. The minute that happened, the minute there were any formal complaints, and there was of course leaking and enormous points made in the media, I immediately asked for an independent investigation. That's outstanding. That's ongoing. I can't comment on that. It would be wrong for me to do so. But, as I've said before, I'm confident I behave professionally throughout and... Of course, the government takes a zero-tolerance approach to bullying. He said it was for the lawyer to make any further statements. But there will be a report. It will go to the Prime Minister. It will be published. So there's no question of dodging transparency around this. Rishi Sunak has resisted calls to suspend Rab while the probe is conducted. Deputy Labour leader Angela Rayner said the report of dozens of complainants raised yet more questions over Sunak's judgment. These shocking claims of widespread bullying and intimidation raise yet more questions about the Prime Minister's judgement, she said. He promised a government of integrity and claimed zero tolerance for bullying, yet he not only appointed Dominic Raab as his Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary, but he continues to prop him up. The cabinet he appointed is awash with sleaze and scandal, but the Prime Minister is too weak to do anything about it. There must be no whitewash, and the Prime Minister himself must come clean on what he knew when he reappointed Dominic Raab. As whether he has modified his behaviour since the complaints were made, Raab said, 
I don't think I have done anything wrong. So look, of course I'm always mindful of the way I behave. But, actually, I think what people want to know is that their government ministers are striving every sinew to deliver for them and they make no apologies for having high standards, for trying to drive things forward. I think people expect ministers that come in to really push things forward and drive things forward. But that can be done, of course, in a professional way and I'm confident that's what I've done throughout. A cabinet office spokesperson said, The investigation by Adam Tolley Casey is ongoing, so it would be inappropriate to comment further whilst that process takes place. A Ministry of Justice spokesperson said, There is zero tolerance for bullying across the civil service. The Deputy Prime Minister leads a professional department, driving forward major reforms, where civil servants are valued and the level of ambition is high. There is an independent investigation underway, and it would be inappropriate to comment further on issues relating to it until it is completed. And that report was by Craig Meehan. From the National, Thursday the 26th of January 2023, from the news section, Scottish Government to Prevent Councils Cutting Teacher Numbers. Article by Craig Meehan. The Scottish Government is preparing an intervention to stop councils from cutting teacher numbers. It has been reported. According to the BBC, Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville is considering her options, with an announcement likely to be made in days. It's understood the Minister will also seek to stop the number of school hours from being reduced. Asked by the National to confirm the reports, Somerville said, We have very clear commitments to improve Scottish education. Ministers are firm in their views that Scottish education would not be improved by having fewer teachers or less time in school. The move comes amid reports that some Scottish councils are looking to make cuts to education in a bid to balance their budgets. Local authority group COSLA said it is concerned about the level of cash councils have received from the Scottish Government. It said a lack of funds for local authorities could lead to job cuts and a detrimental impact on vital local services. In a document leaked to the Daily Record last week, Glasgow City Council made speculative plans to cut up to 800 teachers and close primary schools early on Fridays. The plan, which hasn't been considered by councillors, will be part of a bid to reduce the local authority's £68 million budget gap. The Scottish Government has been approached for comment. And that article is by Craig Meehan. From the National. Thursday the 26th of January 2023, from the comment section, Alistair Allen, How Scots Grew Proud of Their Scottishness, by Alistair Allen, MSP. More than 200 years ago, the Scottish writer James Boswell was introduced to his hero, the polymath Samuel Johnson. Star Trek, Boswell made this infamous apology, Mr Johnson, I do indeed come from Scotland, but I cannot help it. Johnson's response was more perceptive. That, sir, I find, is what a great many many of your countrymen cannot help. Johnson was, perhaps, one of the first to diagnose what has since been called the Scottish cringe, a strange condition which seemingly makes some Scots recoil at anything which is recognisably Scottish. The cringe is certainly not so widespread an ailment as it was in Boswell's day, when the name North Britain was gaining ground in Scotland. It is not even so prevalent as it was in the 1990s when, as students, 
we all received a leaflet from Aberdeen University Carer's Office advising us on how to write a job application. This warned us on no account to describe our nationality to potential employers as Scottish. Yet, the cringe does still break out from time to time. There are some people in Scotland, it seems, who still have nothing to fear but hope itself. Culturally, that means, for instance, that some people, a declining number, still feel uncomfortable with the idea of young people in Scotland learning about Scotland in school. At one time, such opposition was based simply on an assumption that nothing much of merit had ever happened to learn about. These days, this strange position, when it is voiced, is usually also tinged with certain political anxieties. I remember the incandescent reaction in several quarters of the Holyrood Chamber a few years ago, when I proposed, successfully, that people sitting their higher English exam should first have learned something about at least one Scottish writer. More generally, there has, in the past, often been much hand-wringing about an assumed lack of self-confidence among Scots at an individual level. People have suggested, for instance, that young Scots might be less likely than others to speak up in university tutorials. I've claimed probably once based in fact, but less reliably verifiable today. I seem to remember a working group once being set up by Scotland's then Labour Lib Dem government to speculate about such questions. It overlooked the elephant in the room. I claim no psychological insight but, in a country when generations of politicians and others have rubbished the idea that Scots might have any ability to govern themselves, we should not be overly surprised if there is some knock-on effect on individuals' views of themselves. Things are changing. People in their 30s have grown up with the idea that Scotland is quite capable of having a parliamentary democracy of her own. So, what lessons did all this history give us about how we build the confidence needed to get us from here to independence? What do we need to do? There is no magic answer to that. Probably the best response is to say that we need everyone in Scotland, particularly those who have yet to reach a view about independence, to feel increasingly confident about Scotland. Nation building means nurturing all the positive things that go on in Scotland and reminding the unpersuaded that, with the powers to act, we can do much more, governing well in difficult times. It also means constantly and respectfully explaining what independence means to those who don't know. If that sounds unglamorous, it may well be. Being in the SNP is to participate in a team sport rather than an individual one. Making a case to undecided voters will often involve speaking in a voice other than the one used to address a conference hall. It means toil obscuring the doorstep, in Parliament and in our own communities. Nation building also means continuing to celebrate and defend all the things that make Scotland cheerfully distinctive and build up people's belief in what Scotland is and does. The idea that any country might be superior to anyone else is, self-evidently, both ridiculous and dangerous. So too, I would merely add, our claims of inferiority. Thankfully, the Scottish cringe is in long-term decline. Not many people agonise the way Boswell did, although there are still examples out there. Scotland is a visibly more self-confident place than it was. If we build on that, then Scotland's growing democratic argument becomes unstoppable. And that was a comment piece by Alistair Allen, MSP. 
And that was this week's The National Podcast, formerly recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.